Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents Tales from the Dungeon. Epilogue, Part 3 The Final Tale. Late Argit in the 2150th year after landing, in the weeks after the destruction of the Emerald Scarab. The procession of Merriman and Dumog, with the bodies of their nephew and son, respectively, made their way north with full escort along the last road. Upon reaching Ferry Bridge, the Comtis rented out the entire Shining Spring, the most extravagant inn within the city. They lingered there a day longer than necessary, awaiting the arrival of the keepers from the Temple of the Knowing Mother. The Comtis had sent riders ahead to Jumato with a message requesting their services along with an offensively large offering of money. That evening, in the common room, on a long wooden table, the body of Valerian was lain, washed and dressed in plain robes. Candles were set all around, and arcane patterns marked upon the floor surrounding the table in ash, in wheat, and in water. Finally, a diamond was placed upon his breast, and the chanting began. Merriman stood at his feet and waited, waited for the moment the keepers had spoke of. As the chanting continued, it became a single droning sound, and then stopped. The Comtesse felt more than she saw the life being drained from her, aches in her wrists and hands flaring anew. And then the diamond began to sparkle, to emanate prismatic light throughout the room. A flash, and the diamond was gone. But he, Alarion, was back, breathed once more. For the first time in her life, Merriman held him, held him like a child, as he wept. They moved on the next morning, just one carriage and one wagon. They traveled to Ubato. Orteval's body was lain in state in Dumog's diner, so that the town might come pay their respects. Dumog cooked for the whole town. There was food and drink, laughter and sorrow late into the night. Early the next morning, the Comtesse and Alarion accompanied Dumog with Orteval's body into the nearby woods, to the foot of the Ubas. Orteval's still form floated alongside, kept aloft by magic. The group rose to the top of the rock outcropping, to a place Orteval had climbed hundreds of times as a child. There, in the early morning light, they lay his body, building a carn of stones. 
and as Sol rose over the horizon, they said their goodbyes. Valerian scraped, here lies Ortoval. He kept the company of a fool and saved the world, placing it within the monument. He shed tears as he released the rock. Dumog cried out to the heavens many times, eyes red in grief. And Merriman, for the first time in untold years, truly wept. For all who had died under our command had died in the war. For all the lives she had taken, it felt as though it would break her. But at last she stood with Alarion's help, and they made their way from the site. As they turned their backs, a single mournful howl of a wolf could be heard high atop the rocks, where no wolf should be. The first day of Seoul in the 2150th year after landing, two months after the destruction of the Emerald Scarab. The Fenfergal River wound its way south through the landscape. The expanse of the Gimlin Woods on the west bank followed the river all the way to the horizon. The fertile fields on the east bank were vast, eventually reaching the base of the Shalshali Mountains. Every day at this time, for the period of a half-bell or so, Sol's setting light danced on the river's surface, turning it from its normal sapphire blue to a sparkling gold, as if Gorion himself had braided a giant flaxen rope and laid it gently on the land. The central spire of Sol's citadel was arguably the best place from which to view this phenomenon in all the province. The spire was made of gray stone and rose over a hundred and thirty feet into the air. The tallest crafted structure in the Bharata province. It was here, just one floor below the top of the spire, that Sarkeesian stood. Below, Amongst the skeletal ruins of the once strong fortress city, small figures could be seen moving, clearing rubble and refurbishing buildings. She had been there less than a week, but was impressed with how much had already been accomplished in the two months she had been on the road. Thorgen, Feld's Crossing, Cumbershaw, Jamato, the Knoll's Reef. She had traveled far, recruiting. They had 103 bodies committed so far, fewer than Sarkin had when they founded the Order of Seoul 1,800 years ago, but not by much. And that was all right. It would take time to gain the trust of the province again, and it should. There was much to heal. Behind her, there was a clearing of the throat. Sarkeesian turned from the river to look back into the chamber to those who waited. Yonif, hair and beard trimmed neat, armor that almost fit, stood next to a much thinner one. The young wizard, Alarion, 
He had come along with a package as part of the funding. Arrangements like that had the potential to be an awful thing. But Sarkeesian was thankful for him. He was quiet, somber, studious, and intelligent. He had a knack for details and was spectacular with research. He would make a wonderful steward. So, the young man questioned, shall I have the new banner sewn? As it was, is the Order of Soul reborn? Sarkeesian walked to the new desk, which had been brought up earlier this morning, placing her hands upon its top. No. Valerian raised an eyebrow in curiosity. Though it is Gorion to whom I give my faith, it is not so with everyone in the province. An organization that defends the province should be made up of and represent anyone and everyone within the province. All creeds, races, and religions or the day may come again when the order loses the trust of the people. A half-smile drew on Yonif's face as she finished. Valerian considered the words and then nodded. The order has found a wise leader, but it seems we will be in need of a new name. Sarkeesian let there be nothing for a few moments before saying, the order of all. Yonef's half-smile became a complete thing. Alarion also smiled as he noted it down in the book he held, looking up at last. We will need to meet soon, then, to come up with new heraldry. Sarkeesian nodded. Yonef spoke. Will there be anything else, Grandmother? She stiffened at the title, but then relaxed. Someone would have to bear it, if only for a while. No, that will be all for now. Valerian muttered to himself as he continued to scribble in the book. Sarkeesian II, first grandmother of the Order of All, unofficially invested this first day of Seoul in the 2150th year after landing. Time unknown, in a realm outside the province. There was darkness for a long time, a very long time, before she realized she was walking upstairs. In the surrounding darkness there were horrible sounds. Screaming, cries of terror and agony. The iron smell of blood filled her nostrils. The screams passed eventually and were replaced with other sounds. Wet sounds, like raw meat being slapped against stone. Disturbing pops and cracks, things being torn. But she was unafraid. She had been here before, long, long ago. A door... There should be a door not far ahead, and as if the very thought of it summoned it, it was there. She reached out to open the door and stepped through. 
Though she passed from complete darkness into the warm light ahead, she did not flinch, squint, or recoil. The room was six paces across, a single window to her left. A massive candelabra hung in the center of the room. Directly across from her, on a small stone dais, the color of blood, sat a throne. The arms and legs of that dark seat were finely worked images of snakes and rats, wound together, crawling, writhing, the glittering eye of each creature a ruby, emerald, or garnet. A black velvet cushion sat upon the seat below an enormous high back on which was depicted two ravens facing each other, their beaks upturned, pointing to or holding that which lay at the apex of the chair, a singular green eye. The eye was wide open, the iris made of an emerald larger than her open hand. The pupil was an onyx, somehow set into the emerald. She went to the window. Far below, a monochrome town clung to the side of a rocky hill. Beneath a lifeless night sky, she could see many anemic lights shining from the windows of tall, narrow buildings there. Dark shapes moved in the crooked streets, yet none moved with purpose. It was completely silent, hopeless, a mockery of life. She could feel their misery, the beings that dwelled there. It matched her own. Staring down upon it for a time, her breath rose and fell. Hate, jealousy, anger simmered below her calm visage. She must do something about that. She turned from the window, but then she had quite some time to ponder it. Three long-legged strides brought her to the throne. She looked it over one last time before stepping onto the dais, pivoting and sinking into the seat. Her eyes settled on the door. Ten breaths, and then the inky creature formed just over her shoulder, a dark head leaning out from the wall. It didn't seem to have any eyes, but black ichor dripped from glistening white teeth, long, narrow, and sharp as ivory needles. Hail, keeper of secrets. Satar and a 2150th year after landing. One month 
after the destruction of the Emerald Scarab. Soul sat low in the western sky. The hundred-post bridge over the Ardoon River lay just ahead, awash in reddish light. Crossing that bridge would put them in the Pendleton Gap, and officially outside of the province. The lands beyond were simply known as Erdwind Vale, generally considered a less civilized place. But if the rumors were to be believed, the town of Pendleton, once nothing more than a small fishing village, was said to be growing quickly and drawing many wizards and magical types to study some oddity or another that had been recently discovered. Accounts varied from unexplained upwells of arcane energy to the more boring claim of some ancient ruins. Colfin and Ketri were returning from scattering Colborn's ashes upon a grass-covered hill near a once brightly colored house that was beginning to show signs of disrepair. Colfin had pulled some weeds off of two graves, those of Colborn's wife and daughter, and sprinkled the two handfuls of ash Mela had collected over them. Colfin shed tears while Ketri stood quietly by, a stern look that passed for respect and reverence locked on her face. They had spent the night outside the house before turning back south, where they traveled until they came upon the burning road, where they now stood. They had really never discussed what came next. In reality, they had just become used to each other's silent company. Neither had any desire to be part of Sarkeesian's new group of protectors. It seemed too official, felt too confining. And it wasn't clear if Rianach and Mela meant to go out and about in the world any time soon. In fact, it sounded like they may be staying put for a spell. And that didn't really suit Ketri or Colfin either. After all that transpired... They were the type that needed to keep moving, to find something to keep them busy. So when they came to the burning road and had the choice to turn east back into the province or west into the unknown, it wasn't even much of a discussion. The thing was, wherever there were magical types, there was a need for adventurers, for muscle to protect them and do their dirty work. Colfin, frown set square amidst his beard, hands looped under his pack straps, looked up at his muscled and scarred companion. He jerked his head west, toward the bridge, toward Pendleton and the unknown, and grunted. It was a question. Ketri looked at him for a beat, gave a cold smile, and then grunted in return, her head bobbing in a curt nod. They turned and set off. The ninth day of Satar and the 2150th year after landing, three weeks after the destruction of the Emerald Scarab. It was strange to walk unworried on the open road, 
Even when he had traveled with Ortival and Hilarion, Snare had never truly felt safe. Kept his hood up more often than not, eyes always scanning the faces around him. Searching out the intent of some stranger to harm or kill him. To drag him back to the Mummer's Fair. To the Baron. And though it was still hard to believe, that threat was now gone. And so for the first time in years, he walked with his hood down. Soul's spring light filtering through the trees, touching his face and beard. He could have had a pony. Mela and her friends had offered as much, but the last time he had made this journey, it had been on foot, and there was something poetic. Poetic? Gods, what was wrong with him? He had done one good thing, and now he was getting all whimsical? Purposeful. There had been something purposeful about making the journey again on foot. He had passed the mill not too long ago, and the southern edge of town ahead was coming just into view. Yet even closer, drawing nearer at a steady pace, was a wagon, a wagon laden with boxes and crates. Guiding that wagon, which was drawn by two massive draft horses, one a little more massive than strictly necessary, was a young woman with curly brown hair and deep brown eyes. As the wagon came to within ten paces, the woman looked down to bid him a good morning out of habit, and then her face went flat with shock, the reins going limp in her hand. It looked as if it would rattle past as she stared, but as the wagon drew alongside him, she shook off the stupor and pulled the horses to an abrupt stop. Tears touched the corner of her eyes as she said, half to him, half to herself. Snare? Tears had also formed in his eyes as he grinned, baring all his teeth, and for the first time it lit up his whole face, touched his eyes, seemed right. He nodded. Hesed's face went red, and tears of joy fell openly now. She smiled and laughed, setting the brake and tying the reins off on the wagon before climbing down. The process was a little more labored and a little more awkward than it seemed it should have been, but as Hesed turned from the wagon to face him, he saw why. Her belly was round with child. Snare's eyes went wide, and he pointed to it. Hesed flushed and laughed again. There will be a new member of the Moss Trading Co. in about four months. Resilia knows we can use more help. She stepped forward and gave him a hug. There was no flinch. He accepted it with good grace, possibly holding on a moment longer than proper. But what are you doing here? Hesed asked, and then, snapping her fingers, turned back to the wagon reaching under the seat and pulled out a piece of slate and chalk. Snare could not describe the feeling he had as she handed it to him. All these years, 
and she had kept it with her. She saw him looking at it. Don't get your head too full of itself, she said. I just realized after I met you, the least I could do to be ready if I met another who couldn't speak was to carry a slate with me. It sounded like something she would do, and yet something in her look said it was not entirely true, that the slate was in the hopes they would meet again one day. Snare scribbled. I have a story you wouldn't believe. Hesed's eyes went wide with excitement. Really? And do I get to hear it? More scribbling. You do? I think I'll stay a while. Hesed reached out a hand and touched the side of his face. I can't tell you how happy that makes me. Then, with a worried look, she looked back at the wagon. I still have a lot of deliveries to make today. More writing. That's okay. I'll help. Hesed clapped her hands in joy, and they both climbed up into the wagon's seat. As Hesed snapped the reins to get Thivius and Squat moving again, she looked down with a smile upon Snare, and then pursed her lips in consideration. Maybe you should wait for your story until tonight. I'm sure Papa will want to hear it. Either way, Snare wrote, it's a story you will have to hear more than once to believe. The third day of Rabin, and the 2150th year after landing, six weeks after the destruction of the Emerald Scarab. The trees of the southern Gimlin woods were different somehow. Just a little more space between them, more room for soul's light to reach down and touch the many things that grew there. Grasses, ferns, delicate flowers of white and purple. It was beautiful. The Fenvergal was wide south of Lake Cumbershoal. Its surface was like a gently rippling mirror that reflected the image of the feathery clouds that meandered through a brilliant blue sky. Despite the serene beauty, Mela's stomach was a knot of nerves. What if they don't like me? She asked. Rianok kept riding, head faced forward. I have two brothers and three sisters. They don't even like me that much. It was a joke, meant to make her feel better, but it didn't. Rianok looked over, sensing her unease. I love you, and so they will too. She smiled and nodded. Mela smiled back. It felt a little better to hear, but not completely. They rode on. A quarter mile later, they turned off the main road beside the river onto a smaller dirt road with wagon ruts. The smaller road led into the woods for a bit, and then the view opened up again into an expansive meadow, large trees breaking up the fields here and there. Sheep could be seen grazing in herds, safe behind both stone and picket pasture fences. Not too far ahead was a farmstead, a large three-story house and many barns. 
The buildings seemed to grow larger as they approached, and before long they were riding through a stone gate into a yard. Smoke issued from the chimney of the main house, and the most amazing smell of home cooking filled the air. They pulled their mounts to a halt, stepping down and tying them off to a post. In the window of the house, another red-haired face appeared busy at some task, caught the motion of them in the yard, and looked up. Rianok raised her hand tentatively and waved. The face behind the glass flushed, tears visible. The face disappeared, and then yelling could be heard inside. Shouts of shock, of shock and of joy. Mela took Rianok's hand. What if they don't like me? She sent into Rianok's mind. Rianok turned, stood on her toes, and placed a gentle kiss on her lips, eyes looking deep into hers. The back door of the house burst open, and an older halfling woman with Rianok's own red hair, the faintest hint of white at the temples, came out. It was the woman who stood at the window. There could be no question. It was Rianok's mother. Another pushed by and onto the steps. A sister, and then from the farmyard beyond the house, an older male. Another sister, and then a brother. It wasn't long before they all stood a few paces apart, facing one another for a time, before Rianok took a step forward. Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. And then it was chaos. A mass of hugs and tears, of joyous proclamations of thanks and how are yous, and thank the three that you are alive. And then, after a time, it all settled down a bit. Rianok's father, eldest sister, and youngest brother were all looking, in one way or another, at Mela, who stood just outside the fray of the reunion. Rianok, still wrapped in her mother's embrace, turned toward her. Mom, Dad, this is Mela. Rianok's father took a considering step forward. Mela nervously extended her hand and was shocked to find herself grasped in a fierce hug and then another and another until she was wrapped in arms and staring down into a mass of auburn and red hair. Her heart was filled from the streets alone to this. How? Could it have ever happened? Rianok turned her face up and silently mouthed, What if they don't like me? A look of mock horror on her face. Mela burst into laughter. The mass embrace dissolved at last, and Rianok's mother took her hand. Come in, my dear. Dinner is almost ready. And now we have come fully and truly to our story's end. We see that some have found peace, some have found happiness, and some have found rest. Though there are some whose feet will wander still, 
and those who will watch anew over the province. There are always more adventures, more stories to be told. Thank you for taking the time to listen to mine. Good wishes and all blessings on you and your journeys to come. <laughs>